Welcome to the conference room with today's guest, Chans Weber. The value of the sale, that human piece of that connection, if that's not being done, the human part of it, then the software is irrelevant. It's just a tool that's not being used, right? It's just a useless tool, essentially. So that is the big thing that I see very consistently. Welcome to The Conference Room, a weekly podcast where business leaders and growth experts kindly share their experiences, actionable tips, and secrets to successfully grow a business. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. It'll really help us out. And I really hope you enjoy this week's episode. I'm Simon Lader. Welcome to The Conference Room. Good afternoon and welcome to the conference room. I'm joined by Chance Weber. Chance is a serial entrepreneur with over 15 years of experience in the marketing and advertising industries. He founded Agile and Co in St. Louis, Missouri in 2012. With his expertise in inbound marketing, Chance was able to turn a 483 credit score and a $15,000 loan from his parents into a digital marketing agency that's closing in on eight figures in annual revenue. His background in finance, marketing, and online technology has allowed for the success of Agile & Co's data-driven marketing approach, which sets them apart from their competitors and is here to tell us all about it. Chance, good afternoon and welcome to the conference room. Thank you very much for having me. It's good to be here. Thank you very much indeed. So all heroes have an origin story and you're the hero of our story. So tell me, how did you get from leaving college, leaving school to yeah. a multi-million dollar advertising agency. Sure. I had a couple stops. I, right out of college, I was recruited by a couple of buddies that I went to college with who were a couple of years older than me into the financial services industry. So I took the job and I actually had some pretty decent success there, but I found myself you know, making pretty good money. When I say pretty good money, I was right around six figures a year, but I was miserable. I absolutely hated what I was doing. I just, there's something about being a 23, 24, 25 year old kid asking 65 year old people to roll their retirement funds over to you and trust you with them for the rest of their lives. So I found myself just miserable every day in the job. I left that position for recruiting in financial services. And there, again, somewhat successful. I hated it even more, to be honest with you. So really kind of had these soul searching type of moments. At that point, you know, my income had went down, credit travels probably, you know, started happened, things started to add up. I remember getting a car repossessed. One day I went to go to work and the car was gone. Went through just a lot of really rough financial times and strenuous times on my life. A lot of people can relate to that, but really started doing some soul searching on what I wanted to do and started researching online marketing in some way, shape or form. The first book that I ever read was actually Search Engine Optimization for Dummies. And it's funny to say that now because I think that algorithm has probably changed about 6,000 times since then. But read that book, actually started talking to another friend from college who was in the internet marketing world. He recruited me into his company to do sales. And I was at this pivotal point in life where I'm going, okay, I'm 29 years old. I've got a 483 credit score. I've had cars repossessed. Like if there's ever a time for me to go do something on my own, it's right now. I was single. I had no children. Like, what do I have to lose at that point? So that's when I made the decision to go for it. And here we are today, 10, 11 years later. Great stuff. So when you're coming into your client's world, okay, what problems are you typically being brought in to solve? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. So, you know, I have such a wide range of clients. I've got everything from e-com clients, you know, that might sell apparel or any type of, you know, product online directly from their website, all the way to 
to, I've got what I call the ugly businesses. And I say that tongue in cheek, the ugly businesses are actually some of my favorites to work with, but, you know, big manufacturing companies that they might sell a specific product that, you know, cost a hundred thousand or $300,000. So I'm working more on lead generation type of deals with them. But really at the end of the day, as a marketing agency, the most simplistic way to explain it is we are hired to drive businesses more revenue than they are paying us in cost, right? It's really that simple. It's the good old ROI one-on-one concept. So, you know, like I said, I can't pinpoint one thing, but we have everything from clients that really, again, some of these ugly businesses, these B2B kind of manufacturing companies who have never really quote unquote come to market. They have a very outdated website. They've never really like pushed anything digitally. We love taking them from no man's land into the world that we live in. And all the way from that to, I've got a $350 million client that sells medical supplies to everything from veterinarians to dentists and small medical private practices and things like that. And, you know, helping them actually sell their products on both e-com and building their relationships on a B2B basis for their sales team. So very widespread and diversified. And I personally like it that way. It keeps me on my toes. It keeps me learning constantly. Great stuff. I mean, you talked about the diverse clients that you have, right? Mm -hmm. Do you see any kind of common denominators through them in terms of when you come in, the ones that you see are really going to need your help, right? Mm -hmm. Do you see any kind of common denominators in those businesses, as in there are certain things that they really ought to be doing that they're not? Yes. Certain things that they really shouldn't be doing that they are. Yeah, there's one thing that just immediately popped into my mind when you asked that question. It's really more sales oriented than marketing oriented, even though they're connected. It's fascinating to me how many businesses have a salesperson or a sales team that does not effectively utilize a CRM in some way, shape, or form. So as a marketing agency, a lot of times that's where our services end, right? We drive a company 25 leads in a month or 250 leads in a month, and then their sales team takes those leads and they try to sell them. It's amazing to to me how hard it is and big of a struggle it is for us to get feedback from our clients on were these leads quality? What leads turn into sales? How much money of sales worth you know did they turn into? How much revenue generated? And it's amazing to me how many businesses that I work with on all different scales. Like you would think these are like startup problems. These are not just startup problems. I mean, companies that are doing 10, 20, 30, 50 million dollars a year in revenue have these problems and they can't answer those questions. So I find myself doing a lot more sales consulting and actually helping them build out systems to help us as marketers understand what is actually turning into business, right? But that is by far the most glaring problem that I see, which is really hard for me to comprehend, but it exists, you know, way, way, way more than you could ever, you know, dream that it exists in the business world. When you say that the problem exists way more, are we talking about specifically there not being sales systems in place? Correct. Sales systems. Yeah. It's not even the people, it's the systems and attribution of the process of the sale, right? Like where it's at in the pipeline, did it actually turn into a sale or not? Because as a marketer, as a marketer, let's say we ran a Google ad. Okay. Joe Schmo clicks on the Google ad. He goes to a landing page. He says, Hey, I'm Joe Schmo. Please contact me about this. I'm interested. Well, that's great. As a marketer, we would love to know, was Joe Schmo a good lead? Was he a bad lead? Did he turn into a sale? And if so, how much revenue was generated because all of that data helps us then reverse engineer that back out through that funnel and go, this was a good or a bad investment from a marketing dollar standpoint, right? So the more of that information that we have and the more that we close that loop per se from marketing to sales, the better marketers that we can be. Without closing that attribution loop, a lot of times we're like flying a plane blind. You know, from our standpoint, we could say, hey, you've got 250 leads this month. 
But if none of them turned into sales, who cares, right? But if all 250 of them turned into sales, that's great. We want to know that, right? If there's 50 of them that were terrible and 200 that were great, well, that's great. We want to know the 50 that were bad more so than the 200 that were good so we can make sure we don't duplicate those efforts again and we reallocate their money accordingly. So again, closing that, what I would call attribution loop between marketing and sales is what makes a marketing team great. So I love that, by the way. So when we talk about systems, we're not necessarily talking about software and technology. We're literally talking about a workflow. This follows this, follows this, follows this. This has to happen, <laughs> then this, then this. Obviously, in 2022 and beyond, software yeah, software will enables that, right? Yeah, yeah, Someone's going to yeah. play a role. But at the yeah. end of the day, what I'm picking up from what you're putting down is that it's all well and good having the software. But if either A, you haven't figured out what the software needs to do and to either automate or replicate just an offline system of, you know, the sales guy has to make this call, do this thing, whatever it is, and then pass that data back to whomever. Okay. Yes. If that's not happening, then it doesn't matter what software you've got. The whole that's process right. isn't going to work. That's right. And you just hit the nail on the head. It's the online to offline aspect of it, right? The system can be there. The sales rep can see the lead. He can see Joe's information, his phone number, his email address. He can do all this. But then if he picks up the phone and he calls him and that phone is not being tracked through some type of software, that phone call, or he's not labeling it as a good lead or a bad lead or a sale, or he's not entering the cost of the value of the sale is a better word to use, the value of the sale, that human piece of that connection, if that's not being done, the human part of it, then the software is irrelevant. It's just a tool that's not being used, right? It's just a useless tool, essentially. Mm -hmm. So that is the big thing that I see very consistently within small to medium-sized businesses. I'm talking sub $100 million you know, annual revenue type of companies that just blows my mind. I mean, some of these companies are wildly successful. And I'm like, do you know how much more successful that you could be if you just had your salespeople spend you know, 12 seconds per lead to enter this information, right? So that's by far one of the biggest pain points that I run into. And it's very frustrating for us because when we're, you know, I've got clients that spend six figures, multiple six figures a month. And when I'm responsible for that type of budget and I can't close this loop to understand how good of a job or how poor of a job essentially that I'm doing, it's very frustrating. Because again, back to my analogy, I'm kind of just flying a plane blind. I don't really know. Like it could look great on my end, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's resulting into sales. So again, closing that loop is everything. Right. So when the loop is closed, what happens next? Okay. So when we talk about that being a problem, let's magically make that problem disappear. So the sales guys are sure. um, recording the information. It's being tracked. It's being passed back to you. Okay. Something that we talked about before we jumped on the recording, you mentioned the term agile marketing. Okay. Mm -hmm. And if agile marketing is anything at all like agile development, it's about you know, I think it's a Gary Vee expression, failing fast. Okay. Yeah. So how does that interface with the kind of interface between sales and marketing and yeah. getting that feedback? That is ultimately why we shifted to an agile marketing model, which is essentially the same as agile development. It came from that same concept. We've kind of tweaked it and made it our own in our own way, but the model and the concept of it in general is the exact same. So painting this picture again, okay. If we have a client that is running Google ads and we're doing search engine optimization and we're doing Facebook ads and we're doing email marketing, all of these things have a cost associated with them, right? So if we are fully controlling, or I should say, if we're fully able to see the sales attribution back to the marketing effort, then we can start to quantify things. So we can say, we spent, and I'm just throwing numbers out there, we spent $5,000 on Facebook ads and it generated $50,000 in sales. We spent $10,000 
hours on Google ads and it only generated $25,000 worth of sales. Well, what would you do, right? We probably need to flip those budgets or we at least need to start some type of process to start feeding more funds into the higher ROI investment. So as an agile marketing agency, essentially, that is exactly what we do. We are constantly on the fly and moving funds accordingly really based off of two main indicators for our clients. The first and foremost is obviously the data, which summarizes the example that I just gave. Follow the money, right? Follow the revenue. So that's step one. Piece two of that is needs. So a client might come to you and say, hey, we're launching a new product, right? We need to go build out a new website page, new landing pages, new ads, new ad copy. Well, that's a need. We need to use their money to go do that. But really that's it. It's those two things. What is working and what do we need to do? And some months there might not be anything that's quote unquote needed to be done and we're just following the data and moving the money accordingly. So one thing that makes my team different just in general and how we function as an agency is a lot of agencies, and this is what we used to do, to be fair, we've been on this model for six years now. So prior to that, what we would do is we just, just go build a 12-month plan for a business. We'd say, you know, we're going to put $4,000 a month into Facebook ads, $8,000 a month into Google ads, this much into SEO, we would just go run that play. Well, the problem is, is if pieces of that play didn't work, we had this contract and we were just like stuck in doing this and providing these services to see it through. It just, it doesn't make any sense for anybody, mostly the client. So now we meet every single 30 days. And I still do this to this day, even with the size that my agency's grown to. I meet with my account managers and my COO every single 30 days for our first and the 15th of the month clients. And we go through the data of every single one of them. I feel like that keeps me fresh. It keeps me in touch with what we're doing. So I don't become just such a CEO. I want to be a marketer, right? Not just a CEO. So we continue to do that. And we essentially recalibrate or reallocate our clients' funds every single month based off of those two things, needs and data. Right. So is there any particular, I mean, you talked about Facebook ads, Google ads, SEO, right? For somebody who is just kind of coming into digital marketing for the first time, either they're a fledgling agency or sure. they're trying to do it for themselves, okay, a little bit. If they had a limited budget, mm -hmm. where would you start off? Would it be equal distribution? Would you put more into one or the other? Is there any particular methodology that you would follow when sure. you're just starting out, perhaps with a new client yourself? Sure. So there's definitely not like play to run for everybody. It's not like, hey, I would start with Google ads. Right. Or, hey, I would start with Facebook ads. The way I would break this down is I'd kind of reverse engineer your question a little bit. When you look at marketing online specifically, you really have two different buckets that you can fall into. One is what I would call intent-driven marketing. If your toilet is leaking, you need a plumber. Problem and solution. You go to Google, you search plumber, plumber near me, plumber XYZ city, wherever you're located, because you need a plumber. You have a problem and you need a solution. There's a very big difference between that and audience-driven marketing. So intent-driven <laughs> marketing and audience-driven marketing are two buckets, right? You're two okay. buckets, okay? So intent-driven, let's start there, is more so like, Google, right? So I have a problem. Google is a search engine that provides me that solution. Audience-based marketing is let's take an apparel company. So you have an apparel, a line that let's say, you know, politics are so divisive in our world right now that speaks to one political party. Okay. Well, you can utilize targeting from an audience perspective to go find people, let's just say liberals in the United States. You could go find people that are liberals in the United States that that apparel line of liberal apparel would speak to. I would not want to go target conservatives. Okay? So maybe I've got a t-shirt that promotes, I don't know, something on one side or the other of the political divide. Correct. Correct. Yep. So I want to go target the people that would actually buy it, right? right? If it's a liberal clothing line, conservatives aren't going to buy that, right? They're on the other side of the fence. So I want to go target liberal folks for that clothing line. So I'm targeting an audience, but nobody needs 
that t-shirt, right? right? It's not a need. There's not a problem. That's not a solution to a problem. So sure, somebody could go on Google and they could look for a quote unquote liberal t-shirt, but pretty uncommon. You're more likely to show them a message, show them a picture, show them something that appeals to them visually on something like Facebook as they're scrolling or Instagram. They see it, they resonate with it, they click and buy, but there's no intent there. That's just, hey, these are the people that might like this. So let's go cast a net and hope we grab a couple percent. Intent-driven problem solution. Think Google, Bing, search engines in general. I have a problem. I go look for it. There it is. I have an intent. Audience-based, think social media, Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, where we can visually show them something that they would be interested in based on their interest. That's how the algorithm of Facebook essentially works or these social media platforms and try to pull them that way. So it's really everything falls into two buckets. So bring this back to answer your question full circle. Every business would be different, right? But the first thing I would want to identify is which one of these buckets really shows your business more than the other. Now, back to my plumbing situation, it doesn't mean the plumber can't market on Facebook or social media in general. He can, but the plumber is much more likely to convert sales from somebody that has a leaking toilet and needs a service and needs help right now than he is by running ads on Facebook. I could be scrolling my feed right now and see a plumbing ad, but if I don't have a toilet leaking, I don't really care about the plumber, right? If I don't have a problem, I don't really care. So it's more of a branding play for them there. So all of this is interversal, right? It can all cross between the two. But to really answer your question, where would you start? I would have to identify which bucket they're more likely to sell in per business first. That's where I would start. Right. Okay. And as you go through creating, whether it's Facebook ads or Google ads, it's interesting. You made the comment earlier that when you bought the very first book, SEO for Dummers, the (laughs) algorithm has changed. Yeah. How many thousands of times since then, right? And we keep hearing, you know, in the news and, you know, just sort of, you know, in the echo chambers of social media that, oh, you know, Google's changing its algorithm again, Facebook's changing its algorithm again. Mm -hmm. So how do you, as a marketer, and how does your team keep up with the changes so that your ads are going to be seen by the right people? I guess my question is, is it a constant form of trial and error, right? Mm -hmm. Where you're testing and refining and testing and refining and testing and refining? Or is there a formula that you know, if we do that, that and that, it's going to work? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both. So as a leader of my company, I do a ton of reading. Every morning when I drink my coffee, I'm reading. I have half a dozen news, essentially outlets in the digital marketing world that I'm reading the latest and greatest from. So I pass that along to my team to keep them educated on what's going on. Of course, they read as well. But I really feel like that's my responsibility to make sure I keep my people up to date with what's going on because the changes really never do stop. So that's piece one. Piece two is you're exactly right. So much of what we do is truly trial and error. And that's why, you know, where we started with that attribution loop of bringing sales and connecting it back to marketing is so important because we can be trying a whole bunch of different things. But if we don't actually know what is making money, we're just kind of trying things, right? So, yeah, I mean, there is a piece of it, though, that is trial and error. You know, quick story, we have a very large client, spends over six figures a month, and all of a sudden their Google ads over the last couple of months, the performance has really went down. And we started to make some changes. We really couldn't figure out why. There was nothing. This client's been with us for six years. So this isn't something new. But we really have been struggling to figure out what it was. We tried split testing different pages. We tried like reteaching Google's algorithm what a good lead was compared to a bad lead. And eventually the performance just kept dropping, kept dropping, kept dropping. And my COO put a piece of code in on a landing page. 
that essentially retaught the algorithm of Google ads, what a good lead was compared to a bad lead. Instead of splitting into a landing page, we just rewrote the code to do it automatically. And all of a sudden the performance over the last four days had just shot through the roof. And we weren't doing anything wrong prior to that. It was just a different way to do it where we were essentially trying to manipulate what we were trying to do. However, it wasn't working because there's a lot of things. I don't control Google's algorithm, right? We, we just have to work within the parameters of it, but there's a lot of it that's an unknown at the end of the day. So, you know, that is a perfect example of trial and error. And we were probably ready to get fired by that account because the performance had went so far down, but now it's actually coming out on the other side of it. And it's probably going to be better than it's ever been. So just more quality leads than ever before. This is a very sophisticated client that does track every single lead that does bring attribution back, which is amazing for us. But, you know, you hit the nail on the head there. A trial and error is always a piece of what you're doing. I actually tell people that if you're not testing with 10% of a client's budget, then you're not trying. You're stagnant. You have to be testing. You have to be trying new things. You can't find the next win if you don't try, right? You can't just stay stagnant. Eventually that will catch up with you. So in many ways, as you're kind of talking through that, it sounded to me very much like can drilling for oil. You can have all the geologists, mm -hmm. the best geologists with you saying yep. that, the soil samples all suggest the oil might be here. But sure. until you sink the drill into the ground, you're never yep. going to know. Right. And you can sink the drill into the ground and it could be that the sweet spot is three feet to the left, two sure. feet to the right, whatever it is, right? But until you actually sink that drill in, and the first 10 times could not quite get the yield that you want, Yep. But only through knowing that and getting the results and the testing and so on, you then sink it the 11th time and that's when you really do strike oil. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think experience obviously comes into play, right? A geologist with 50 years under his belt compared to five days is not the right. same person, right? So, you know, we are the geologists in your analogy at the end of the day. Obviously, our risks are a little more calculated. We're not just putting a blindfold on and drilling a hole somewhere and hoping for oil. However, yeah, sometimes we do drill that hole and sometimes it does come up dry, right? So we do have to drill another one. And that's marketing. You know, I would tell you that that's just marketing in general. I don't care if you hire an agency. I don't care if you have an internal marketing team. I don't care if you're running branding campaigns, traditional marketing, digital marketing, it doesn't matter. You're going to have losses. The key is to have way more wins than the losses and to learn from the losses. That's the other big thing that I would say. When the losses come, why didn't this work? And how do we make sure we don't make this mistake again? Because the losses will happen inevitably. So again, how do we learn from those and make sure that we don't make those again? Again, when you're starting out with a new client, do you tend, having done this exercise of, are we going down, which of these two buckets sure. are we going down, right? Mm -hmm. And you've identified the appropriate bucket. When it comes to things like split testing and trying new things, at the outset, is it a little bit of, let's throw as much different kind of, as many dots at the board that our budget allows to see what sticks. And then we know, okay, fine. These few seem to work, those didn't. So next month we'll refine and refine and refine. So we're not really expecting much in say months one to X, yeah. but then we'll yeah. get it better and better. Or is there something perhaps a little more strategic than that? Yeah. So again, I think experience comes into play, right? So at this point, I don't have a niche that's out there that I haven't worked with in something that's at least relatable. Right. right. But we actually take a different approach out of the gate. Instead of casting the super wide net like you're talking about and try to narrow it down, I actually try to start small and grow into it. Because what I don't want to do is I don't want to just spend a bunch of my clients' money on a whole bunch of ads and clicks and things that I know aren't turning into anything. So I use the analogy with my team all the time. We've got to walk before we run. Once we're jogging and then running, then we can grow this thing faster 
right? But I don't want to just go throw $100,000 onto Google on a campaign that's brand new of something I've never run and just churn through $90,000 of my client's money before I figure out only the 10 was performing. So we try to start smaller and grow into it over the course of the first 30 days. But to answer your question, every single client that I ever take on, I tell them the first 30 days that you work with me are going to be the worst 30 days you ever have. Because if I don't have a very good data set, I'm again, flying the plane blind. Month two should be 10 times better than month one. By the time we get a full 90 days of data, we should really know what we're doing. So once you get into month three, four, and beyond, things get much clearer because we are much more educated as far as what the data looks like and making decisions based off of those accordingly. Right. No, I love that. So what seems to be coming through is the importance of data and then how you respond to it as opposed to just, like you say, flying blind. Yep. And patience, you know, that's a hard thing for business owners to write checks and not see returns, right? It's a hard thing to swallow. So I really try to under promise and over deliver, right? And set up expectations very low. And look, I have clients that they start out absolutely terrible. And then by the end of it, it's a great thing. I have clients that start out and just for whatever reason, we hit the nail on the head and we've got a good data set and they just crush it right out of the gate and never look back. Any and everything happens between that. So give me an example of one that perhaps didn't work out. Okay. So like maybe a learning experience where you look back and you go, you know what? It wasn't great then, but at least I learned something from it. Yeah. There's one that recently comes to mind for me. It's actually a good friend of mine who's a performance coach. And we put on a huge free event and he brought heavy hitter names. I mean, people with millions of followers on Instagram for free. And the concept was to build up as big of a following as we possibly could, get as many email addresses as we possibly could, put on the event for free and then cross sell them on the back end. And that's exactly what we did. The problem is it didn't really sell that well. And this is where being a marketer can be frustrating. In my opinion, this is only my opinion. I don't have anything to prove this factually, but we drove the lowest cost per lead of any campaign that we've run in years. And that's just because he had star power, literally like star power speakers. It was a virtual event. It was free. So we drove the lowest cost per lead that we've driven on any campaign in years, but it didn't convert into sales. In my opinion, what we were trying to sell was way too expensive. It was way overpriced. So as a marketer, right, I'll shift out of his example. I know if we're on a podcast, you can't see me, but this Yeti coffee cup right here, okay? If I can buy this Yeti coffee cup from Yeti for $20 and somebody else is selling it for 50, okay, is it my fault that they can't sell it for 50 as the marketer? Or is it their fault because they've got the cup price $30 higher than the market, right? So when I look back on it, I think that his service was priced way too high compared to the market. And therefore, it did not convert and sell. So, you know, when I look back on that, and it's not to point the finger at them, we learned lessons through that as well. But I wish that we would have strategically thought of something else to cross sell with other than that premium product. I wish we would have had a lower barrier of entry sale that was easier to get people in the method of paying and then maybe down the road, try to cross sell them into this higher ticket item. Basically, I feel like we went from zero to 100 too fast. We should have went from, you know, zero to 20 and tried to get somebody to buy at that price point and then grown into it from there. So again, you know, would it have made a difference? I don't know. But in my opinion, you know, that's kind of where, you know, one that we recently lost on that hurt a little bit just because it was such a success on the front end that it was a disappointment when we didn't sell many on the back end. 
Right. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that. Um, sure. I think it's interesting. I have a friend who's also kind of like a life coach, performance coach. Okay. And he had a program online that he released during the pandemic. And okay. similar kind of thing. He was telling me about it. A free webinar yeah. he was running. Initially, it was done live. And then as an evergreen with a, which drove people to a landing page. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he had in parallel to that, just kind of a free ebook that he was running as a lead magnet. Okay. And the free stuff, people couldn't get hold of it quick enough. Okay. It was like going like, you know, hotcakes. All right. But people weren't taking their credit cards out. At the point when they came to the paywall, they were like, okay, I've got my freebie. I'm off. Okay. And I think that what he actually ended up doing was selling the ebook for like a super low amount. Mm-hmm. seven bucks 11 that was something really small and that completely changed the amount of leads that he got or the amount of clicks and people signing up dropped dramatically but the amount of conversion into the you know onto the program rose significantly and i think it was just because in that scenario it was just that where initially he thought well the more people that i can get eyeballs on me and on the things sure. whatever then some of them are going to buy unfortunately he was just attracting the wrong people he was just attracting yeah. freebie hunters yeah yeah there's a couple lessons you can grab from that number one you just hit it could have been the wrong people right he could have got the wrong people number two he could have you know a sales problem where the product was priced too high like the scenario that i just gave when that's just my opinion i could be wrong but the other thing is is where people really mess up in these things is they're way too short-sighted. You know, they run something like this and it fails according to their expectation or what they hoped and they pull the plug and they stop. The best thing that he can do is go give away another free something or make another, you know, low dollar ebook, lower level of entry cost and keep building that pipeline and building it and building it and building it and email marketing over and over and over again and providing value to these people for free over and over and over again. And eventually they bite, right? You get these small percentages that bite. So it is a numbers game. Now, if you've got a million email addresses of the wrong people, then it is what it is. But in my opinion, if they were interested in your free offer and or they bought your low cost of entry product, they're interested in you. They're interested in what you have to offer. You've got to convert them. But that can be a marathon, not a sprint. You could get an email address today that doesn't buy from you for two years, but you've got to stay consistent with them. You can't just quit. That's the key. It's the marathon, not a sprint concept behind it. Yeah, and absolutely. Do you know what? You remind me of, there was a a guest we had on some time ago who was an email marketer. His name's Eli Delaney. He's an incredible email marketer. And he has the system where once you're kind of in his world, you're basically going through an automated email program for like three years. And he's just constantly adding to it, constantly adding to it. And he said that at the time we were talking, he'd recently made a sale to someone. And the reason why he made a sale to that person when they were conversing and whatever, it tracked back to his father clicking on a link like nine years ago. Wow. And then the father had never bought, never spent a dime with him, right? Yeah. But just stayed, got value, got value, got value. His son was probably still in, I don't know, grade school. (laughs) <laughs> you know, yeah. when, when, when it's not the clicks on that link and his son's yep. now in a business, needed some help. Hey dad, who do you know? Oh, well, this guy I've been following for some time. Sure. Nine years, you know? Yeah. So yeah. you're right. No, I mean, I mean it's, marathon, it's, absolutely. Yeah. And that's all marketing. You know, that's every method of marketing that there is. Like people are so short-sighted and I get it. As a business owner, it's painful to write checks and not see a return, right? I mean, that's not what we think of marketing as, but the key is the consistency. 
right? And sticking with it for the long run, it will pay off. It will pay off. And you might make some bad calls. You might make some good calls. But at the end of the day, you've got to look at the body of work in months and years, not weeks, right? Like this is big picture stuff. So one campaign fails, you got to learn from it, take it on the chin and go after the next one. Hopefully the next one makes up for what you lost on that one and this one. Right. And I've seen it happen, you know, a ton of times. I mean, I've got clients I've had for years and years and years. Trust me, we've had plenty of failures in that process. It's part of it. That is marketing. You know, people just think, oh, I wrote a check for 10 grand. I've got to make 50. And it simply doesn't work like that all the time. The key is over time to get to that point where you're consistently, you've got enough build up where that flow is there. But again, that takes patience and a budget and sticking to it for the long run. Absolutely. It's like in the recent Elvis movie, Tom Hanks, who plays. Tom Parker yeah. uh, says, it doesn't matter if you do 10 stupid things as long as you do one smart thing. There you Maybe go. Maybe the numbers don't quite work. <laughs> but, but it's like you're saying, you know, if you're investing money in marketing, not everything you do sure. is going to be a success, but the things that's that right. are successful are going to make up for and then give you that ROI. Yep. That's the thought process. Right. Great stuff. Okay. So you told me about one that didn't go quite well that you learned from. Give me a success story. Oh, boy. Where do I start with this? I've got a lot more of these, thankfully. (laughs) I can give you an example of an old school client that I talk about sometimes. They approached us. They've probably been with me for eight years now. And they manufacture ultra high pressure homogenizers. Okay. Don't even know what that is. And let me tell you, they've been with me for eight years and I think I'm still learning. So super interesting family-owned company out of Boston and uh, great people. They were foreigners that the mom and dad are, you know, first generation Americans and just uh, great people. I've been on site to meet them. Great business, but small. So there are manufacturers of high-pressured homogenizers, but not ultra-high-pressured homogenizers, okay? And there are like eight to 10 of these companies on earth, not just in the United States, but on earth. And when they came to us, they had a website that was like, 10, 15 years old. They've been here, you know, they'd they'd had this business for a long time, very small, but it was so ancient. It was so, so terrible. Everything about it was bad. They'd never done anything like this before. So we built them a brand new website, redesigned it, like essentially brought this, what I called ugly business, you know, to market. And now their website gets tens of thousands of visitors a month. They have more leads that they can even begin to handle. They're still trying to scale into the lead flow, you know, eight years later, they're still trying to scale into it. And, you know, we have just absolutely reinvented that business and their revenue is multiples of what it was when we took them on. And here's the best part about it. They spend $4,000 a month with us. So they started out as like a $3 million company with us. And I think they do about 15 now and they spend four grand a month. And the reason it's so cheap and to make that movement that they did is it was a very, you know, small, tight niche, right? Very vertical business that doesn't have a ton of competition. So with a smaller amount of money, we were able to take a smaller amount of product essentially, and make a much larger impact. I have other clients at $4,000. I mean, they couldn't even you know, start the process to work with us for that. But here these guys are, and they do really, really well with that type of budget. And they've been on the same budget for all this time. And it's absolutely amazing for them. And I don't think that they will ever leave us. <laughs> they should be with us for the long run at this point. Wow, that's great. It's fantastic. So Chance, tell me, what are your top three tips for somebody to be successful in marketing that business or in working with a digital marketer? 
Yeah, I think the first thing, you know, I've really been on a bit of a, a tangent lately calling out entrepreneurs before they work with digital marketing agencies. And the reason is, is because being in this industry, I see so much bad work. And this isn't a pat on my back. This isn't me trying to say I have the best agency out there. That There's a lot of good ones. Unfortunately, my number is 19 out of 20 digital marketing agencies are terrible. I get a hold of their work. I just took on a client about three months ago now, a timeshare exit company gets people out of timeshares. The digital marketing agency that was handling their account, they were spending $350,000 a month and they were actually running ads on how to get a timeshare, not how to get out of them. And they'd been with them for three years, spending that kind of money. Hundreds of thousands of dollars went into literally a keyword that is the exact opposite of what the service that the business provides is. So I see things like nothing even surprises me anymore. So rule number one that I would give is understand digital marketing. Just on a basic 101 level, Google it, understand what a cost per lead is, understand what click-through rate is, understand what conversion rates are. You can just go Google this stuff, take a crash course, read something for 30 to 60 minutes and understand what the hell you're talking about. So you can actually ask educated questions to make sure that they know what they are doing. That would be number one. Number two, identify a budget. So I have a lot of businesses that come to me and they want you know a $100,000 a month job and they have 20 $2,500 to fund it. It's not going to happen. It's not going to work. And I usually tend to not work with them. I'll let them go or try to guide them in another direction. But you have to identify a budget going into these things. This is a pay to play game. You know, I've got everybody from, you know, 2,500 bucks to hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. They're not all the same. They're very different businesses. How we market them are very different. The strategies are very different. What's involved is very different, but I can't get inside of your business and tell you how much money that you have. Right. I mean, I can, but it's probably better that you do that and understand that. So understand a budget. You know, that would be number two. And the last one is patience. We've kind of already hit on this a couple of times in this phone call. You need to understand that there could be some ugly months. And especially in the beginning, it could be a little bit rough. And I'm not saying always, I'm not trying to be all doom and gloom, but you know, sometimes, especially if there is zero history, there is zero data, and an agency has to truly start from the ground level and build a foundation up from there, it can be a little rough out of the game until we get a feel for the land and kind of establish a rhythm with how this is going to look and how we can actually make it work well. So patience is something that is also very important. It's not, like I said, it doesn't always just hit the ground running and explode and drive a ton of leads or sales, whatever the case might be. It can take a little bit of time. But those three things would be three, I would say, the business owners should absolutely do. But number one is the most important. People need to understand who they're hiring and why. Right. Okay. Great stuff. And what's next for you and for the business? You know, I found myself, I'm doing a lot more speaking engagements lately, which I kind of have a love-hate relationship with. Candidly, you know, to get paid thousands of dollars to go speak to people and essentially market myself is a pretty cool thing. So, you know, <laughs> it's fun from that perspective, but I'm a husband, I'm a father, I've got two and five-year-old daughters. So the travel part of it, I do not like at all. I'm at a point where I'm only flying private like half the time. So flying, you know, in airports and layovers and, you know, I'm in St. Louis, Missouri. We don't have a lot of direct flights, a lot of places. So I wish I could justify, you know, flying private everywhere that I went, but I'm not quite there yet. So the travel is beating me down a little bit, but I am enjoying the speaking. I've also over the last year, I've started coaching young entrepreneurs, you know, either on like a retainer basis or they just pay me by the hour and book in my calendar when they have questions and things like that. I put a monetary thing on that. It's more of a passion thing, but I do bill for it just because I think that it holds them accountable and make sure that they're prepared for those calls and that they are utilized 
utilizing their time, just like it's my time as well. But, you know, getting a little bit more into the coaching, I don't promote that. It's a passion thing. I just, I love entrepreneurship and I love helping young, up and coming, green, young in their journey, however you want to frame that business owner. So I've been doing a lot of that. And then, you know, just scaling my company. And, you know, I'm going through a lot of things now here. You know, as I remember we were a six figure mark for a lot of year, going to seven figure mark for a lot of year. Now we're crossing eight figures this year. And it's just one of those things that management's coming into play. I'm having to learn a lot about how to take this next step and this next piece of growth that we're in right now. So really being a student of the game, leaning on you know my mentors to make sure I can continue to grow this thing in an educated way. And there's just a lot of challenges. You know, I have a mentor by the name of Andy Frasilla. He's got a billion dollar company, super smart guy. But he told me years ago, we were chatting and he told me years ago, he said, look, man, the problems never, ever go away. They just change. And the magnitude of them is much larger. And I'm seeing and understanding that, you know, that in this piece of my entrepreneur journey now. So, you know, it's one of those things that I love it. I've learned to, as I call it, embrace the suck. Like things are going to suck. Like times are going to be hard. You just have to embrace it and lean into those things. And I've conditioned myself over the last decade to do this stuff. So I'm excited to attack the things that I'm trying to do right now within my company. But those are the big things. And then, you know, just spending as much time with my family as I can around all this, you know, life. It doesn't matter how much money you have or how successful you are or any of those things if you're not happy and you can't spend it with the people that you love. So trying to make sure that I'm focusing on those things as well as much as I possibly can and treating that just as importantly as anything else, because it truly is the most important thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if people wanted to reach out and work with you or with the organization, how can they best do that? Sure. Well, I mean, I've got a lot of different ways. I mean, my personal website is cbweber with one B. So cbweber.com. And I'm on Instagram. I'm chance, chance B Weber. So C-H-A-N-S-B-W-E-B-E-R. I get DMs in there every day. I try to help and get back to them as much as I can. Again, usually in the mornings. And then my company website is agile and co.com. So all written out, agileandco.com can absolutely be reached through there. And if you fill out a contact form, my team usually funnels it to me in some way, shape or form. And I can talk to people that way as well. That's fantastic. Well, Chance, I've learned so much in this last kind of half hour or so, and not just about the importance of data, but the importance of responding to it and the systems Mm -hmm. that need to be there in order for that to take place. And all the other stuff we've talked about, it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. So Chance Weber, thank you so much for joining us here on the conference room. Thank you, Simon. I appreciate it. Coming up next week on The Conference Room, I'll be talking to search and recruitment expert and managing director of Townsend Search, Dan Ellis. I think just in terms of being successful as a recruiter, I would say being genuine, being transparent, being disciplined. You know, if you don't have anything to do, there's always another phone call you can make. There's always something you can be doing to hustle. So this is an industry where you really have to hustle. Thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it. And make sure you visit our website, theconferenceroompodcast.com to see all the other episodes and to get access to the show notes and resources mentioned in this episode. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your network or better still, go on to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any other podcast platform and leave us a five-star review. It'll only take you a moment, but it'll mean the world to us. And please don't hesitate to tell us which topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes. To get in touch, drop us a line in the comments section or send us a message on social media. Just search for The Conference Room Podcast or me, Simon Lader, on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or TikTok. I'm always open 
to a conversation. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you'll be alerted when a new episode goes live every week. Thanks so much for listening to The Conference Room, and until next time, keep talking.